but moments that matter. Moments that matter. Moments that matter. As part of recognising International Women's Day, we here at Balance of Life wanted to hold a podcast to recognise someone who is at the forefront of promoting diversity and inclusion in the Australian workforce. And to that end, we thought there was no better person to talk to than Dr. Melina Georgiasakis, who is the founder of Franklin Women, which is Australia's women's organisation for females working in the health and medical research sector. And I should note that Melina also works as a policy and research manager for the Bupa Health Foundation. And today our conversation obviously touches on a number of different areas dealing with diversity and inclusion, but particularly what does an inclusive workforce look like? And that's something that Maluna has worked hard to create and is continuing to work hard to create within the medical research sector, which as we touch on within the conversation, has a real degree of difficulty around being inclusive for women. And I feel like some of the learnings that you would take from what Maluna has done within that sector could certainly be used across any workforce in Australia where you really are trying to promote those cultural pillars of diversity and inclusion. So we cover that in a whole lot more, including at the conclusion, hearing Maluna's own take on the Choose the Challenge theme of this year's International Women's Day. But with all that said, I hope you enjoy our conversation today with Dr. Melina Georgiasakis. So Melina, thanks for joining me today. I'll get you to start by just providing me a brief rundown of your career to date and how you came to be involved with Franklin Women. Hi, Darren. Uh, thank you for having me. And yeah, my pleasure It's uh, to do that. It's a bit of a long story, but I think that's where the story behind all good things that happen. So I'm actually a, a medical research scientist by training. I'm a Queensland girl and I did a very traditional scientific career path where you do a science degree and honours and PhD and it really leads you to this career path to being an academic So I was researching vaccines, which is very topical at the moment. Uh, But after my PhD, I did a postdoc and realized that a traditional academic career path wasn't for me, even though I was really passionate about uh, improving health for the Australian community. And so I moved down to Sydney for a policy job and it was still in vaccines, but advising governments on policy. And it was around that time that I started seeing that there was a a number of my uh, female colleagues were leaving this scientific sector that I was working in. And it was really peculiar to me because I was quite young in my career and, and conversations around equity and biases and culture just weren't things on my plate. And I didn't really understand what was going on. So I felt like that there was an opportunity for me to connect with people in my field, um, particularly other women and provide some support as we navigate our careers. And that's when Franklin Women was born. So Franklin Women is a social enterprise that I started five years ago now uh, when I was a research fellow at the Westmead Children's Hospital. And it's now grown to be, uh, I don't know, I feel like a bit of a movement, a grassroots movement about, I guess, creating a health and medical research sector where women can thrive. And yeah, I still have my own scientific career, but I now work at Bupa in the Health Foundation. So Franklin Women has grown and so has, uh, I guess, my own career in the sector. So it's been a bit of a journey. Where do you sort of think the main gaps have been in the, in the medical research centre? I guess give us a, paint a bit of a picture for us about what gender equality looks like and what gaps that you identified in, in the process of sort of leading up to and since you've been a part of Franklin Women. Franklin Women is something that I do on the side. So it was really important to me as I led this social enterprise, uh, I guess that I didn't really lose touch from the challenges and I guess where the sector is at with respects to gender equality and diversity and inclusion more broadly. And so when I first started the organisation, I actually didn't really understand that there were any differences with respects to gender around success and also opportunities in our sector. So it was only when I started it, because it was all anecdotal, I started seeing, well, you know, it's my immediate network were primarily women. And it was those that I was seeing that were leaving, that they were having conversations just saying, you know, I'm, I really wanted, want to pursue a career, um, something I'm very passionate about. I have all the skills, 
but I just don't think I can make it. And a lot of that conversation was about them as individuals. And it was really funny when I started looking into the data, I found out for health and medical research, which is a, a discipline within the greater science disciplines, women actually outnumber men at uh, entry into uh, health-related careers. So at undergraduate degrees and also, uh, I guess, early postgraduate degrees like honours and PhDs, women actually outnumber men, which is quite different to some of the other sciences uh, like engineering and mathematics. So when you look at the more senior uh, roles within the health and medical research sector, you get to this point about mid-career level where we start seeing this gross attrition of women over the course of their careers to the point that they're um, underrepresented in the top roles within our sector. So that was the situation when I started uh, looking at the numbers about five years ago, and it was sort of my evidence base for why Franklin Women was needed. Five years on, we definitely uh, aren't at uh, parity when you look at, I guess, senior roles and a whole number of metrics around success in our sector, whether it be grant funding, um, leadership positions, uh, mentorship, those sorts of outputs that quite often thought as those that leaders have. Uh, but we definitely have seen improvements. And I think because we're starting to see a shift around this conversation of not just gender, I guess, equality, but also around this broader inclusion piece as well. So the sector is starting to see some big shifts. So I'm hoping that that just signifies that the, that we're going to see some closing of the gap in the years to come. Well, I think it's very topical at the moment because there are there is the two elements, diversity and inclusion. And I think if you... you if you have one without the other, it's never going to be going to quite work. And I think what we're seeing in federal parliament in particular, where there has been an emphasis on diversity and on uh, quotas and things like that, and they have slowly but surely, in some areas at least, gotten female representation up a little bit more. But because they haven't changed the inclusive nature of the workplace there, now we're seeing some of the problems that happen from having more women within that workplace or more females within that workplace, but it's not an inclusive workplace, so therefore you're not going to see the positive results that you would hope to. I mean, have you sort of, do you feel like there, there's some similarities there? And I guess expanding out, can you elaborate on how you see both of those two cultural aspects to use a scientific term, sort of work in symbiosis with one another uh, in the workplace to get the best out of your workforce? Yeah, I think you're really spot on raising, I guess, that distinction between diversity and inclusion. And I have to say, you know, these concepts, when you're in the space of advocating or driving some action around diversity and inclusion, the concepts are really well known and you understand the distinction. But, you know, it can be a bit exclusive as well. Like, you've got to bring others along the journey with you. And, you know, I'm always cognizant when um, I'm trying to, to talk about this, at least within our sector and, and the Franklin women community, to remember that five years ago when, you know, I just finished my PhD, I was trying to make it as a research fellow, I was trying to apply for grants, I'm writing for papers. It was, I was just trying to keep afloat, basically, as an individual, thinking about starting families, you know, buying houses, that these sort of bigger cultural pieces weren't really on my agenda. Um, it probably wasn't really until three years ago that I started learning a lot more through Franklin Women that this idea of diversity, so bringing, I guess, people with diverse backgrounds and experiences and perspectives around the table is super important. So I guess that's having everyone in the room. But then the inclusion piece which I also didn't quite understand, was that once you have them in the room, what is the environment that you're giving so you actually can have them safely participate, but also, um, I guess, feel comfortable to contribute? So there's no point having everyone in the room um, if the environment is not supportive of getting the most out of that diversity. And so, you know, they're, they're jargon. Um, but they're really important. And so one of the things from Franklin Women, uh, I guess, that I've learned is that how through our very grassroots movement can we try and bring 
more people along that conversation, but in a really accessible way. And for us, um, I call it sleuth advocacy in that, you know, if I just said, come to this great event, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion. I can tell you that uh, a few people are going to attend and the people that are are those who are very well aware of it and probably majority would be women, at least in our sector. Um, so I try and frame it in a different way to think about how do we get people in the room and then once we do, how do we take them on a journey to understand these sorts of concepts in a way that it's non-threatening, they understand it, and then they feel a bit empowered through knowledge and skills to take it back to their workplace. And it's a bit of a different approach, but it's worked for us. And I think it complements a lot of the other real forward and maybe policy-based ways that we're having a complementary effect in our sector. Is that how the strategy sort of evolved or has that always been the strategy to try and educate and empower the people, the, the uh, females through Franklin women within the industry to go back to their workplaces and actually enact the change themselves rather than maybe going to the top of the organisations and trying to educate them and get it to flow down from there? So we, we try and do both. I guess. So, you know, the, 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 our immediate priority while all this cultural change is going on is to make sure, I guess in Franklin Women's case, the women who are most impacted by this real poor culture and, um, and biases, both conscious and unconscious, and uh, I guess the systematic uh, way that science is currently set up um, isn't in their favour. So we ultimately want to support them and so that's making sure that we have a supportive community. It's a very psychologically safe space at Franklin Women. We're very welcoming. People feel comfortable to share. Everyone has each other's back. There's no competition. And we try and set that tone among everything that we do. And I think that ripples through with Franklin Women. And also invest in them in initiatives that help them navigate this system so that we don't see them drop out. So that's our priority one because cultural change takes time and I guess there's a lot of discussion about we should be focusing on the top and, and the system but you know I don't want to lose sight that while that's happening that we've already lost such amazing talent. So that's our priority focus. While that happens indirectly they get empowered and have new skills and they can be advocates for change but you know that sole responsibility isn't for them and so we also try and do a number of things I guess targeting leadership or those who have a, a position of power or maybe a stronger voice in our sector who um, right now there's a number of amazing women but I guess majority of these roles are, are held by uh, men and so we've we try and do a bit to engage the organizations and, and these leaders as well to have that ripple effect coming down I think they work they're complementary can you quantify how effective you feel Franklin Women has been over the past five years? Oh, gee, that's a really good question. Um, it's funny, the team and I, again, uh, like many, I guess, who work in this space, um, either they're in their own organisation and take on diversity inclusions or um, inclusion roles on the side. And for us, Franklin Women and the team all do this on the side. So we were really aware that we had a lot of anecdotal feedback and we could see the benefit just basically by how many have got behind us. And I guess it just shows that we've we've filled a gap. But we realised that we had to try and quantify it. But it does take a bit of time. And um, I'm very grateful that one of our team members, Dr. Amy Vasalo, has led an evaluation of our mentoring program. And it's taken two years, but we've been able to actually put a, a framework to actually look at, all right, what are the outputs that have come out of a, an initiative that we have put in place? And do we think that they're going to, they give us indication that we're going to have impact, not just on the women and their careers, but on the culture of our sector more broadly. And uh, we've done a pilot and, and finally trying to publish these results. But it was really wonderful to see that this I guess, complementary approach of supporting women through this pinch point, um, I guess, where they usually drop off from our sector, which is what we try and do through our mentoring program, and also um, targeting male and female leaders who are our mentors and taking them through, I guess, a educational piece around the importance of diversity and inclusion and how they can be a part of the the shift. It was amazing to have something tangible to show that, wow, like we're seeing these women get promotions and 
have, um, you know, new grants or collaborations that they never had before. But we're also seeing, um, I think it's something like 90% of our mentors had said that they had a new understanding of diversity and inclusion, but also had the tools to make changes in their workplace. And I think, you know, it's a small thing, but I think the ripple effect of that uh, really can't be quantified, but is large. And I mean, I one of the reasons I've been fascinated to have this conversation today is because I've dealt a little bit in the medical research uh, sector. And an anecdotal story that I've had is my cousin who works in the center, uh, sector as a, a, a laboratory assistant, she just she was very social we used to see her out quite a bit and then she just disappeared like for three months and we thought someone had kidnapped her and yeah. uh, we found out later on that she'd just gotten gone to a company within this the medical research sector who i won't name for obvious reasons but she just said it was such a dog eat dog culture she said everyone was out looking for themselves we're working 14 hour days and she said it was just manic and she said eventually i just had to walk out just to try and keep my sanity so you know, and and why I'm fascinated with with your journey is I think the degree of difficulty to do what you're doing and push cultural change within the medical research sector would be much higher than in most other industries. I would guess. I mean, do you agree with that assessment? And why do you think that's that is that has been so? Yeah, we definitely have a unique model, career model. Uh, within science, academic science, but particularly in the health and medical research sector. And, you know, most people, unless they've worked in it, don't, wouldn't really understand it because, you know, you don't often get a job where you're employed for an X amount of time. So uh, just in general, independent of gender, uh, working within the health and medical research sector is very competitive. It's very stressful. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty. You're quite often relying on grants which is government funding, which is highly competitive. I think the success rate for NHMRC grants at the moment is sitting at around 10%. And if I just that in context of this workforce, so, you know, you talk about health and medical research researchers, but people might not ident- know who they are. And if you just think about the last 12 months with COVID, the people that you are hearing about on your TV screens who are coming together to come up with vaccines, who are doing a public health, Um, campaign, uh, trying to figure out how do you implement a new intervention or strategy against COVID. This is the workforce that I'm talking about. And you've got these brilliant minds. They're absolutely dedicated to what they do to persevere through all of this. Yet their funding is coming down to a 10% success rate. And so it gets to a point where individuals, rightly so, have to put their mental health and well-being um, as a priority. And currently, although there are definitely some shifts, the sector more broadly isn't supportive of that because the drivers and the system is still based on these metrics around publishing papers and applying for grants, which unfortunately are really only allowing a certain subset of our workforce to thrive. And if you mm-hmm. have any that competes with your um, time, uh, such as caring responsibilities um, or disability, uh, then it means that you just aren't competitive for, in this very cutthroat environment. So, yeah, I think that that anecdotal story is very representative of what a lot of women face but also others um, who are considered, you know, minority groups or underrepresented in our sector. So something really has to be done because we are literally using losing this amazing brains trust that have invested so much time and expertise in, um, I guess, basically changing the lives of our community. So as I think it comes across, I'm very passionate about it. And, you know, if Franklin Women has had a small way in supporting some of these great minds to to stay in research, but also go into other careers um, that also improve health, even if it's out academia, outside of academia, then I think, I'm, you know, I think we've had the impact that I that all I could ask. So, because of it, it's so productivity based and because it's so fast moving like it's it's not an industry i guess you can easily step away from for a couple of years and then seamlessly move back into is it i mean and that's one of the things that you've you've looked at within franklin women is to try and if if females want to 
move away from the workplace to start family and be caregivers, they can still have uh, access to the support they need to stay engaged with the industry and to seamlessly move back in and even sort of get promoted despite the fact that they, they're sort of moving away to uh, start a family and things like that, which probably wasn't the case uh, certainly you know, five, ten years ago. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's that culture shifting and there's a, it's not when your outputs are and how many of them over a short amount of time are really what's a measurement that makes you competitive. If you do take time out for whatever reason, then if you compare that to your peers who have still been in the workplace, then you're not considered competitive. And there's been a number of policy changes relating to this. So how funders accurately capture, uh, I guess, career breaks, career disruptions and, and take into account your output relative to your opportunity. So they're things that are happening. Um, but I guess it's, you know, some of these slighter shifts around, you know, just talking about caring responsibilities and flexible working and, you know, these sorts of things that take the language acknowledging that right now primarily these are roles held by women but you know changing the language that they're sort of parental initiatives and it's it's not just a women's thing it's how do we encourage anyone in our workplaces to work flexibly or take time out to take on caring responsibilities and that being supported in our sector I think those sorts of things happening as well and um, I think marrying that with the policy changes is what's going to put us in a in a better foot um, in the years to come. And talk to us a little bit about the carer scholarship program that you've put forward, because I think that's been one of, one of the areas that's been quite effective for Franklin women uh, to, to allow pe- people the freedom to be both caregivers and breadwinners uh, within, the, within that sector. Yeah, no, that was a that was an initiative we started really early on, and uh, yeah, it's been yeah, it's definitely had an impact. I guess we fund it through our memberships, so um, unfortunately, we can only we give two scholarships a year, but we definitely get applications for a lot more. But what we really try and do is you know have a look at where there's a gap, and so and I guess where the evidence is around disparity of opportunities between genders, and and for our sector, it's conferences, so it's actually a really esteemed thing to have the opportunity to present your work at a conference it shares your findings with others which basically improves scientific research because people are sharing and learning off each other but when people have a look at cvs um, quite often they look at how many conferences you've presented at and if you've had invited presentations and it's um, there's a lot of evidence that women are underrepresented around speakers yeah so one of the things that when everyone was thinking why why do we not have equal numbers of men and women presenting quite often it was that women weren't invited and that definitely was a case there was bias around um, plenary invitations but quite often even when women were invited it was a logistical nightmare to um, get to Japan to give a, a conference presentation. You know, if you were if you're on maternity leave or if you did have primary caring responsibilities, even if you did manage to get your partner or someone else to travel with you to take the kids if they're particularly young over to the conference, the cost involved in that was so astronomical. It usually was a family decision to decide whether or not you would travel to present your work. And quite often then as a family, you would have to go without having a family holiday because um, the amount of funds were needed to, to do that. So we uh, started a scholarship that no matter who you are, if you're a man or a woman, but if you were a primary caregiver and you had an opportunity uh, to present at a conference, but additional caring responsibilities were going to get in the way of you achieving that, you can apply for us for a scholarship. And the scholarship was not for your flight. The scholarship was to go towards reducing the financial and logistical barriers getting in your way. And we've funded close to 10 now, plus we had a special COVID scholarship last year, which obviously there was no conferences, but went to things like dinner ladies, food vouchers, just to reduce the logistical burden of of lockdown. And um, it actually has made a meaningful difference and really came to 
the difference between someone taking up an invitation to present their work or just not feasibly being able to go. Um, so it's only one or two people, but I think um, what we've seen now is there a lot, a lot more acknowledgement among conference organisers, but also funding bodies that this additional support is needed as well to make them family friendly. Well, and looking at some of your other initiatives, like around the professional development, the mentoring programs, I mean, what sort of professional development are you specifically trying to target towards uh, the members of, of Franklin Women? One of the gaps that we, or that I felt basically, being a woman who was trying to pursue a career in the sector, I felt that I knew my science. There were so many great opportunities for me to connect with people in my field and learn how to, I guess, perfect a method or some scientific skill. But actually, if I wanted training on um, how to manage a team or if I wanted training around self-promotion or using social media or on clear writing or, you know, how to put together a pitch if I'm going for a job or if I'm applying for funding – there was actually no one, nowhere or no one providing me support to do this. So these often soft skills uh, and no forum to have open conversations about them. So even if I did feel that I was choosing to leave academia and move into another role, I had no confidence about these transferable skills. I literally would feel like, well, if this job doesn't want me to design a vaccine, I basically have nothing to offer them. And that's what I wanted to really solve through the Franklin Women Professional Development is, you know, just increase awareness of these skills that we actually do have as scientists that are actually highly transferable and I um, guess giving us the awareness of what they are, how to articulate them to somebody else um, and then feel confident enough to be able to deliver on them. So all of our professional development is is based on on these sorts of concepts and we de we deliver many events a year and um, they're very well received and it just shows that obviously this is still a gap and that uh, it does actually make a big difference on the skill set but also the mindset uh, of those who attend these uh, events um, and I still love them. One of the benefits of organising them is I get to pick things that are, that are really relevant to me and four, four years, five years on, there is still so many concepts and topics that I still want to learn about and bring them to the Franklin women community. So yeah, I get very excited about being able to do that. What, what's an example of a professional development course that you've done that you feel has really made a difference in your professional life? Oh, you know, so we run a mentoring program. So that's a distinct, I guess, initiative separate from our events. And that's really been a game changer for me, because I guess we work with this very talented and passionate group of women who run a, a leadership consulting and they work with us. They deliver the content to the Franklin Women community and, and just hearing how they speak and how they approach leadership and how they empower I guess, the participants through this program has been a real eye-opener for me because it's really made me realise that something as simple as a mentoring program that can often just get disregarded actually can have a big impact on the individuals. And as an organiser of it, not even a participant, it's had a big shift in my life. And I think that's mainly been around the term leadership. And it always had been a really exclusive term and it was linked with years in a career or a hierarchical position in your career. So you're only a leadership in our sector if you're a professor, which is the top of the top. And you might not get there until you're 50 or 60. But it's through our mentoring program and some of our events on, on leadership that it really made me realise that anyone can be a leader and show leadership qualities. And by just having that realisation, it's really released. Um, I guess opportunity both for me um, and I've seen that with the number of people who are part of our community just just breaking down that stereotype just basically gives you permission to to lead um, and call yourself a leader and also lead change and so that's been a bit of a defining thing for me over the last few years. What do you think is the most effective way to implement a mentoring program? Because I've seen a number of different ways of doing this. I mean, is it just, it, do you feel like it's regular catch-ups? Is it shadowing someone at work? Is it a little bit of all of that? Is there been any particularly that you found really effective within the mentoring programs that you put together? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I guess I think mentoring can happen in so many ways and none is better than the other. I think it's just what the person who is being mentored needs right now. And and informal mentoring programs um, and informal mentoring just by having a coffee can be so valuable. And our mentoring program was really bringing the model that uh, Surrendus has used in other sectors and adapting it to the health and medical research sector based on our knowledge of how it works was complementing all these other things that happening, but knowing that there was a gap in that there is there really wasn't any other formal program. And why this has been really effective in our sector is that Surrendus deliver a very structured program with a number of touch points, and that really keeps momentum because we heard a lot of feedback being that oh, I've, I've reached out to a mentor, but, you know, when they're really senior and, and you're more junior, you can still not feel confident about reaching out to them and engaging with them. And sometimes, you know, it loses momentum and meetings don't happen. So by having it being facilitated, it has a structure with everybody feels comfortable that they can work within and it keeps momentum. But one of the, I guess, I think has had the most impact and I guess at least nothing else has really been like this is that ours is cross-organizational in that Franklin Women brings together really diverse individuals in different roles um, but also within different organizations in the health and medical research sector and so organizations sign up to this program and what happens is they put forward mentees and mentors and they are matched with their pair is always matched with someone from another organization so they're really your mentor then isn't invested in your career they don't really have any biases towards their advice that they're giving you and it really has paid off in spades with um, mentees feeling comfortable to share things that maybe that they wouldn't be able to share with others and present their whole picture to the mentor and also the surrenders team actually go through a very thorough and considered matching process to make sure that they take into account exactly what the skill sets the mentor brings and what the mentee feels they need at this point in, in their career. So I think between the structured element and the fact that it is um, mentees and mentors from different organisations has, uh, I think, been two qualities of the program that has really, I guess, set it apart and, and helped it to have an impact. Uh, now, I'm going to take you back to something you said earlier about around some poli the policy changes that you've seen over time. I mean, are there any particular policy changes you feel have made a real uh, positive impact to the work that you're trying to do within Franklin Women within the medical research sector? Yeah, no, there has. And probably the biggest shift that we've seen has been driven through the Athena Swan Charter. So this is something that came out of the UK and, and the Australian equivalent is called Science and Australia Gender Equity and it's called SAGE. And basically SAGE has basically been an initiative that's come out of two peak academies within Australia, the Australian Academy of Science and the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. And basically they've come together with a vision um, and to pilot the the Athena Swan Charter to the to Australia and what they've really done is that they've put out to organisations working within science within Australia and said that you can apply to basically being graded and get an award based on, I guess, what you are doing in your organisation to show that you are creating an environment where your women can fully participate and have equal opportunities. And it's really been a success. It was started in 2015. And what it's done is really inspired more than talk. And it's basically given a reason for organisations to look at their data. So it's very evidence-based and organisations need to put in a submission to basically be awarded uh, a different category. So 
they get awarded basically a bronze award is what they start out and to get this award it means that your application has been reviewed and you have demonstrated that you've got policies um, and initiatives in place to basically address gender equity within your organization and the wider sector and so the ripple effect of that so many organizations have taken part in the pilot and have been awarded their bronze awards in subsequent years and it's really seen a big shift in what attention gender equality but also diversity and inclusion has been given within workplaces so f- f- there's a there's a real driver that wasn't there before and it really has allowed this grassroots movement of Franklin women to really complement that and um, basically given us a platform to have momentum as well. Well, you talk about data there. I mean, is there any data that, that, that you're aware of within the medical research sector that shows the positive impact that some of these policies and the move to more, a more, towards a more diverse and inclusive workforce is having? Yeah, there are. There is, there's a few metrics that get regularly reported. I guess from organisations, it's, you know, the very typical ones. Um, so the number of women compared to men at certain levels of career, the number receiving promotion, and also traditional metrics for our sector around producing papers and applying for grants. But so th- these are data sets that are looked at internally. But one of the things, I guess, that's a more externally visible metric is around grants funding, which I talked about. And um, the National Health and Medical Research Council is the main government funding body for our sector. And they really are transparent around both application uh, numbers by gender and also success rates. And they've actually had specific targeted initiatives where they funded additional grants each year for women Uh, but what we've seen through those metrics is by there is so much they're so long to go but you're actually seeing a closing of the gap at certain stages of career with respects to gender and so you're seeing more women apply for grant but also successful in their grants and so that's I think a positive sign for us that's something that's more external other than in the organizations. And what do you think from your experience practically what what improves around the workplace once you get the diversity and inclusion um, part, parts of the culture right yeah and so all of these you know those things that I talked about are maybe what you've referred to about that diversity so saying yes we have equal number of men and women um, at leadership roles or or getting promotions but the inclusion part is is a bit harder to measure and report on and so I guess that's what we really want to see because for our sector ultimately yes it is the right thing to do we need a workforce where everyone has the equal opportunity to contribute and the the equal opportunity for success but when you're talking about all these conversations around what is the benefit of having a diverse and inclusive workplace within the business sectors and and a number of other industries. They've actually quantified this. They're saying if you have different perspectives around the table, if you create an environment where they can be heard, uh, where people feel comfortable to challenge ideas, to come up and innovate and, and lead ideas, so that's the inclusion element, that you actually have a business benefit And so it's really interesting for our sector, which this hasn't been quantified, but if you think about our benefit is actually improving health. Our benefit is coming up with the next vaccine or the next cancer treatment or the next public health campaign. So if we're creating an environment in the health and medical research sector where everyone who has been trained and has this passion to contribute can do so in a way that they can fully participate at their best, then what you're doing is, yes, you're creating an equal opportunity environment, but you're ultimately allowing them to come up with the best science to improve the health of the community. And so really, I just don't see why this is not something that isn't of national importance, because we want 
to have the best possible health outcomes. And we can only do this without having all the brightest brains in this space being able to contribute. So there is a big benefit from having a diverse and inclusive health and medical research sector from my perspective. And I think one of the things, one of the bits of information, if you like, or, or the the message that you want to get across to people or that we want to get across to people is it's not a zero-sum game. Like We're not no. doing this. We're doing this actually to lift everyone up. We're not doing this to bring some people down and, and lift others up and sort of have this level of mediocrity. It's about once once we get bring everyone up and, and bring everyone into the room, if you like, that's going to lift the whole organisation up to be the, the best that you can be rather than bring people down to a level to sort of, or you're waiting for someone else to catch up. And I think that's the message that, that you know, you've sort of been trying to deliver today and also that we need to just continually pound and get out to people. Oh, yeah, it's it's so true. And and it's such a, a difficult narrative, though, because we, sh- you know, shouted at the rooftops as much as we can. But, you know, so many people have different and unique experiences with this and um, and different journeys. And so it's, yeah, it's really how do you bring along those people who may still be really hesitant or for whatever reason, when privilege gets taken away from you, you can feel challenged and it's and maybe not on board with it. But it's, yeah, how do you bring everyone along the journey with you in a way that is inclusive right so so that you know it's a no-brainer it becomes a no-brainer and it's just really how we do business from now on in our sector it's just the status quo is to try and get everyone around the table who has a good idea and then make sure they feel comfortable to say it well i think that that goes to the next question i was going to ask because there is a real cultural shift that needs to happen doesn't there and how do you how important is going to be challenge those cultural stereotypes both conscious and unconscious in the success of your movement i know you're sort of doing that with the wikipedia editathon is one of the things you're trying to get assist in that cause where we're just challenging those cultural stereotypes and challenging the culture of privilege that exists within different industries how important is that going to be and how does things like the wikipedia editathon assist towards end Yes, that's a really good example of the sleuth advocacy approach that we take, I think. And we were really fortunate two years ago, and we're doing it again this year, to have support from AbbVie, who are a big champion of us and our message, to deliver a Wikipedia editathon. And it's a really good example how we've tried to to hang the messages of why, I guess, it's important on an event or an activity which people might not usually attribute to gender equity. And so we did this Wikipedia editathon because there really was uh, women basically in sciences, women in general, but particularly in science, are underrepresented on Wikipedia pages. And so basically what that means is that we aren't capturing and presenting to the world the contributions historically and also now, I guess, that women are making to science and for us um, to health. And so what we decided to do is deliver this uh, editathon to bring people into the room and give them skills to edit pages. And it's just a really feel good activity. But what we ended up doing off the back of that is creating, I guess, some some factual storytelling around that that really brings to light the underpresentation of women on Wikipedia and what that actually means and why correcting that is important. And so it gave us a platform to have a bigger conversation. So yes, we had, you know, 40 people in the room and over the space of four hours, I think we made something like over 20,000 changes to Wikipedia, whether it be an edit or a new page or new words. But what it also meant is that we then had a bigger conversation through our network and also through the media that really raised this issue of unconscious and conscious bias, which has resulted in the fact that women just weren't visible and their contributions on the world's biggest public encyclopedia and, you know, truth of knowledge. So it was great that we could have a big, little bit of impact, but the biggest thing for us is that it allowed us to have a conversation to educate people um, so that they actually understood and 
felt empowered to make a change themselves. Do you remember any examples of particular things that you had to edit, maybe something out there that consistently across Wikipedia? Yeah, well, do you know what the interesting thing is, um, which I learned through doing the edit-a-thon, is the hardest thing is that there's two things that complicate it, is you need substantive evidence for a fact that's put on Wikipedia. So, and I completely get why that happens. It's super important. If someone's going to put a fact up there, then it needs to be substantiated with evidence. Otherwise, people can put anything up there. But one of the issues is women are less likely to be nominated for awards. If they are nominated for an award, there's all this unconscious bias around selection or or um, women receiving the awards, um, you know, Women publish less papers as first author papers in our sector. Women are less likely to go to leadership positions. And then maybe if they do, they might not feel as confident enough to write about it or people aren't doing media stories on them. So they're less visible in the media. And so all of these systematic and unconscious biases that are happening in the background actually then mean that there's less evidence available in the public domain that actually can be used on a Wikipedia page. So we went trawling for this sort of information, but the step behind that is just addressing all of these inequalities in the first place so that we have the references to then put um, on a Wikipedia page. So that was one big learning for me. And the second thing was that Wikipedia obviously is a, is a community in itself. And so those who write and edit our Wikipedia pages um, are the general public. Um, but what that means in context of this platform is it's the majority of editors are, are white men. And so they bring their own lens to reviewing Wikipedia pages. And so when they, if someone adds a new page, quite often they look at it through um, their own biases and the, uh, bias that they bring to the review process and quite often take down pages that don't they don't align with what they think success or successful is and quite often that means that pages or or evidence to support women uh, are removed so there was two big learnings for me about the process for wikipedia that made me understand just how it has led to be such an inequitable platform when it comes to gender or other minority groups such as persons of color yeah i I think that's right i think there's obviously there's a lot of uh, stuff that goes on behind the scenes, and I only realised uh, not that long ago that if people or if 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 there's a, I think there's a way you can sort of say this person's not significant enough to have their own Wikipedia page or something like that, and then it gets taken down. So that was quite possibly what you were finding there um, with the women in science, that where their people were making those sort of uh, marking those those people is not significant enough and then they disappear off the wikipedia so oh no it's, it's the process in itself is fascinating but you can see what how these yeah how i guess the underrepresentation is what it is yeah because we i think we so many things we just take for granted and we don't realize these other things that are happening behind the scenes where as you say most of that's being done by middle-aged white men who may who probably don't have any ulterior motives or there's nothing sinister going on behind it, but they've just got their own sort of biases that are coming through in the way that they're doing that. So it is really, I guess, having some skin in the game and making sure you understand how these things work culturally and that, that, that way you can sort of challenge some of those stereotypes and try and turn the conversation around. On that, I've got a final few questions for you, uh, Melinda, before I let you go. We... First question is that it's been a, a big last first five years for Franklin Women, but what's, where do you see Franklin Women in five or ten years' time now? Where do you hope to see it? Oh, I love aspirational questions. They <laughs> excite me, but also overwhelm me at the same time. Well, the ultimate goal would be that Franklin Women is needed, but I feel like maybe five to ten years that won't be the case. And what I would really love to see is our organisation reach more women in the sector. I guess uh, we're primarily New South Wales, or, or we're a national organisation, and our scholarships um, and our, all of our advocacy work is um, national. But I'm based in New South Wales, and so is most of the team. Most of our uh, events and our mentoring program is local. And last year we did publish an impact report um, as a way. I guess what we've been talking about is as the conversations around 
need to invest in gender equity initiatives and people are putting money to them, we also need to start having some evidence, I guess, that the return on the investment is what we expect. Uh, And so we did through the mentoring program evaluation, but also this five-year impact report actually capture the impact of um, what we've been able to achieve. And after doing that, it just made me realise that there is still a need and I I have to work to get Franklin women locally in all states and territories and so if if that's something that we can deliver our mentoring program and continue to expand on our activities so that more women uh, can be reached but also that we have a connection through our I guess authentic conversations you know for no for lack of a better word with the organizations and keep them um, I guess attuned to the grassroots because so many of the gender equity uh, conversations really can be top down and and sometimes policies don't always ripple down to actually changes um, that that affect the people who they intended to benefit and so I guess by keeping our grassroots um, movement going and and making it um, around the country then I guess we're just making sure that that bottom-up approach is there as well and allows us to um, advocate from the bottom as well from the top. So that's my big vision. But I also need a lot of sleep and um, (laughs) those sorts of things as well. Hang out with my kids, you know, give my mum a few extra phone calls. So, you know, so steady wins the race. But when when I start capturing um, some of the impact we had through our our report, there is no other option for me. That has to happen. It's just going to be how and when. And what advice do you have if someone's listening to the podcast and wanted to make a similar cultural impact on their profession, even if it's not as as broad and as grand as what Franklin Women has been? What, what advice would you have to someone that wanted to make an impact? Yeah, Franklin Women is obviously an extreme thing to do. But the one thing that has shown me is the small act can really have the biggest benefit. And so if you look in your own locus of control or where you have a a voice of influence and think about the thing that has impacted you the most even if it's just one small thing and opening up about it and talking about it and coming up with practical suggestions and feeling confident to bring others along in the journey with you it's a vulnerable thing to do but these very small authentic conversations in an area where you can have impact are all small changes that if we all do them that they're going to add up and have a big difference and if that's the one thing that I can um, offer from um, my own experiences and and a small handful of people try it then yeah I'm very happy that I can offer that from five years of my own experience. And the last question, we're putting this podcast out as part of International Women's Day. And I just want you to know, I just wanted to ask you as the final question, what this year's theme of International Women's Day, which is hashtag, hashtag choose the challenge, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I love International Women's Day because it really puts a focus on something that really is everyday conversation for many. And Choose to Challenge is a really empowering theme, but I just like to ground it because we've also got to remember that being in a position to challenge something is often comes with privilege. So you're in a position where you feel confident or have a mechanism or have a a voice to challenge. And so in context of this International Women's Day, I guess I just want to raise awareness and to highlight that for people to feel confident to challenge we need to create that environment where we have the processes and also the support mechanisms in place that people feel like that they're in a position where they can do so. So no matter what position you hold within your workplace, whether you're male or female or whatever industry you may be in, hopefully to Melina today has not only given you some food for thought around what around what diversity and inclusion looks like within your workplace currently, but also will inspire you to choose the challenge for yourself some of those practices that you may be partaking in on a day-to-day basis and challenge some of the conscious and unconscious biases that may exist and strive to create the kind of diverse and inclusive workforce that will raise everyone within an organisation up and allow you all to perform at your best.
So I thank you again for your time today, and I look forward to joining you again soon.